This is Psych Bates, a show about what really matters in mental health, of all matters, mental health. We bring you the biggest experts for the most important topics. By any means necessary. Let the debates begin. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Monty Altohami and Dr. Jonathan Nemias, your Good favorite afternoon. psychiatry residents. Um, we are back at it again with another episode of Psych Debates. Um, and today, what are we discussing, Jonathan? We're discussing global mental health. If there was ever a buzzword out there for undergraduates and uh, psychiatry resident hopefuls, this is the one. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think it's like, more simply put, like just mental health care access globally. Um, and we're so excited to have Dr. Vikram Patel, who's honestly one of my heroes, Jonathan. Like I remember seeing, uh, speaking of, of buzzwords of medical school and, uh, resident, uh, psychiatry residency hopefuls, uh, watching his Ted talks early on in medical school and be like, so inspired and being like, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to become a psychiatrist and. And you guys probably know this. Um, I'm I'm originally from Sudan, and so one of my one of my goals of my career is to uh, go back to Sudan and and help with the healthcare system there. And uh, seeing his videos certainly inspired me to continue my pursuit for my psychiatry career. He's a professor at the Global Health uh, uh, Department, of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School, where he has his own lab, uh, the Mental Health uh, for All Lab. Um, and he has so many accolades and his achievements are so many. Um, and we're going to be listing some of them later, but we're so excited to have him on. Indeed. Indeed. Um, I'm excited. I, I want to hear from really a specialist in the field about what is global mental health and how does that differ from say run of the mill mental health? You know, what, what does that mean? Like, like, are we, are we traveling the world? Are we spreading our, our awesome Western ideas? Or is there something more? I think, I think that's kind of a leading question right there, but I am yeah. excited to find out exactly what that means. Yeah. So, and you just, uh, you're, you're giving us a teaser there because I think there is so much to it there, um, about what you said about global mental health and, uh, how we can practice mental health in different parts of the world and, uh, potential cultural considerations. Um, and should it be something that is externally enforced or locally, organically produced? Um, and I think, you know, just generally speaking, mental health and substance use disorders are literally now the leading causes of disability worldwide. Uh, and this is something we tend to ignore, I think, uh, when we talk about global health um, in general. You know, we, we, we think of the communicable diseases, the infectious diseases, the, you know, as quote unquote tropical diseases. Um, and then the second generation was that now this non-communicable disease burden is also building up in these in, in low and middle income countries. No, is it? Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. It's like we have enough uh, trouble, I feel like, locally determining or, or trying to convince people of this this disease burden that is mental health. And so when there are places with just terrible poverty and just as far as physical health, not able to meet the the needs of the populations and why would anybody focus on on mental health so to speak and and i feel like I, this is going to be a very telling podcast to to go into that absolutely and uh 
I, I agree with you 100%. It certainly is like a, just more than a double burden of like the non-communicable and communicable disease. I think there's really is a triple burden because mental health is another thing that is actually uh, quite ignored in low and middle income countries. And even though we have these like evidence-based therapies, pharmacological and psychotherapies for treating mental disorders, they are there's a huge mental health care gap um like most most places don't really have um the resources or even the interest in approaching it for multiple reasons so whether it be like stigma or lack of capacity um or just a simple lack of infrastructure in place so i think it is going to be as you said a telling podcast but before that guys again visit us at psychdebates.com the home of mental health debates and discussions and education. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to our podcast so that you are updated when we re- whenever we release an episode. Uh, visit us at the website, psychdebates.com, where we're developing a platform for the important discussions about mental health. Yes, please, think, please. Jonathan? We will, we will uh, continue our odd, annoying quirks until you give us feedback that we should stop. So <laughs> give, us, give us those reviews. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, without further delay, I, I really want to get to the meat of this episode because I think it's honestly one of my favorite episodes. And I know I tend to say this a lot, but uh, I was really like just humbled uh, by uh, Dr. Vikram Patel's like eloquence and his breadth of knowledge uh, and the many, many initiatives that he's taking on. Um, and I think we're all going to get inspired and educated by him in this episode. So without any further delay, The Psych Debate House calls on the motion for debate, and we begin with discussions. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Psych Debates. We are excited to have you on for a very special guest, Dr. Vikram Patel, who is a professor of global health in the Department of Global Health and and Social Science and Social Medicine, rather, at Harvard Medical School. His work is focused on uh, the burden of mental health problems across the life course and their association with social disadvantages and the use of community resources for their prevention and treatment. He, le- he, he co-leads and co-founded so many organizations, uh, including departments for Mental Health for All, uh, Lab and co-leads the Global Mental Health at Harvard Initiative. He also co-founded uh, Movement for Global Mental Health and the Center for Global Mental Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, as well as the organization Mental Health and Innovative uh, Innovations at Work. Uh, particularly, uh, one of his earlier organizations was Sangath, San an Indian NGO, which won many awards, including the Public Health Champion of India Prize. Uh, so we're really excited to have him on. He has so many awards, just to mention a few, the Order of the British Empire, Time Magazine's um, 100 Most Influential Persons for the year 2013. We're certainly humbled by his accomplishment and looking forward to talking to him in this episode. Dr. Patel, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me over, Monty. Yeah, so I mean, we, we usually, me and Jonathan usually like to start a conversation uh, with looking at definitions. Um, now, w- w- would we, we'd like to ask you first, well, what does it mean to have an initiative or what does it mean to uh, pursue initiatives in global mental health? What does that mean for, for our audience? So first of all, I just wanted to maybe explain what global mental health as a discipline seeks to do. Um, it's important to re- remember that global mental health is a discipline or a field of global health. 
Uh, and it essentially has the same goals of, as global health, but within the specific domain of mental health problems. That is to say, it seeks to reduce disparities in the attainment of good mental health. Uh, essentially, that is an issue that applies both within populations, because there are disparities for the attainment of good mental health in every population, as well as between populations. Typically, that is to say, the gaps that we observe between countries that are wealthy or contexts that are well-resourced and contexts that are less well-resourced. So global mental health really is the discipline that is inquiring about why such disparities occur and how they can be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I like the parallels here. Uh, and it, it brings to mind one of those things that, that people kind of bring up sometimes when we talk about mental health, is particularly in a global context of why should we focus on mental health? Is this a priority um, versus focusing on physical health, particularly in low and middle income countries? I know that from my own experience of, 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 of being in Sudan for some time in my life and being from there, just speaking about the idea of like having mental health initiatives, people are like, well, we don't even have medicines for physical problems. Why should we focus on this other thing? That seems to them less important. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think you, you, you touch on another really important point about global health, mental health, which is to say that a one, one size, one concept, one idea does not fit all. It doesn't even fit all within one context. Um, and it certainly doesn't fit all across contexts. I think what global mental health seeks to do in reducing disparities, it, it, need, it really seeks to design mental health interventions that will be acceptable to the communities that it seeks to serve. Um, this often requires um, quite dramatic transformations in the way that those of us who are clinicians in the field of mental health, say psychiatrists or psychologists, imagine uh, the work that we do. We often imagine the work that we do as clinicians as being not any different from say our colleagues in infectious diseases. But the truth of the matter is that you know, the treatment of COVID-19 as, 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 as a contemporary case of an infectious disease is pretty much the same, no matter which part of the world you're in. The differences in different parts of the world will be largely based on the resources that different clinics or contexts can have, for example, whether they have access to oxygen. Um, but really the treatment protocols are identical. And we in the clinical mental health professionals have often uh, really followed a very similar kind of approach. You know, there's a treatment for depression is this, treatment for schizophrenia is that. But the honest truth is actually mental health problems are understood and responded to in very different ways in different groups of people in different contexts, often heavily influenced by cultural, social, uh, and economic factors. Um, and that to assume that the clinical intervention can be applied in a similar way across these very different uh, groups of people, I think um, is an error. It's an error of judgment. It doesn't work. Uh, to give you one very good example is um, the use of antidepressant medication. If you look at the use of antidepressant medication in most low resource countries, you will find that it's extremely uncommon for any practitioner to prescribe them other than psychiatrists. You will rarely ever see, for example, any other prescriber prescribing it. It's extremely even more uncommon for people to take a full dose uh, for a full course. Uh, its acceptability levels are vanishingly small when it comes to these sorts of medications. So clearly we have to engage with the explanatory models, the illness beliefs, the illness narratives, but we also have to understand what alternative strategies might be more acceptable and could be just as effective as those interventions that we traditionally use in our clinics. 
when I think about somebody uh, doing kind of global mental health work, I, I is actually one of the things that comes to mind is, is working with the local communities in order to find out what are those best interventions. And I'm curious how, how one actually goes about that. Like, can, can you walk us through, say, if you were in an area that has a, a low resource country, what, how do you actually start to like, have these discussions like, of how to best address these disparities? Well, I think that's, that's a great question. So, you know, I'll just borrow on, on, you know, experience, my own experience, you know, there are probably a few different ways to, to sort of boil an egg, but, you know, they all sort of end in the same result. Uh, and the way, the way that I approach this is um, I first of all start with a premise that one has to give equal respect to the global science, which almost always, or mostly, not almost always, I would think it would be fair to say the majority of it comes from a very, very small homogenous population, which is essentially, research done predominantly on European ancestry people in a few wealthy countries, but that is not to be uh, 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 rubbished. I think that's important and one has to give, uh, one has to uh, start with acknowledging that science, but an equal weightage must also be given to what is practiced, believed, and found useful in the communities that you're, uh, that you're actually seeking to uh, address mental health problems. But typically, my starting point is both reviewing the literature and understanding what the literature tells us. Let's take a specific example. What are the effective uh, psychological treatments for depression and what are the active ingredients of those treatments? Uh, you know, typically these will be CBT and IPT uh, and other kinds of psychotherapy interventions. Um, but at the same time, I wanna ask questions to people with depression in uh, the place I'm working, let's say in India, which is, uh, which is the exact example of, 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 this, uh, of the work that I've done. Um, how do you cope when you have these symptoms? We don't use the word depression because of course no one have a diagnosis of depression. Uh, and if, if I had to tell them, you know, you have this illness depression, they would probably not understand what I'm talking about. So instead what we do is we paraphrase the symptoms using literally the vignette of that person's own experience of symptoms. Uh, and we say, you have all these symptoms. Can you tell me how you understand what, uh, what's happening to you? Typically they will never use the word mental illness or depression. They will typically say things like, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing all these really difficult and distressing feelings uh, and experiences because my husband is drinking a lot and he comes home and gets very aggressive, right? So you've got in a picture, you know, both, both the understanding of the cause and it's quite interesting, those causes will match you know, classically with epidemiological studies as well, um, uh, and, and their explanatory model. And then you'd follow on and say, what have you done about it? Uh, what are you practicing on your own? What are you seeking help from other people, like a, your priest, your neighbor, your, your family member? Um, and what techniques have you found are really helpful to you? And, you know, it's really interesting when you do that, you actually discover that people intuitively, in fact, often do the kinds of things that psychotherapy tries to teach people to do. And I've increasingly come to the conclusion that psychotherapy is, of course, born in solid science, but it's also born, on, born in human intuition. Uh, and, and, and what we're trying to do here is to match the intuitive practices that people are using in diverse cultural contexts with those uh, techniques that have a strong foundation in empirical science and develop, therefore, interventions that can map onto both. Uh, and then, of course, you develop interventions and then you, you test them out in, in, in randomized control trials, et cetera. You know, through that kind of systematic process of work, what's, what's for me an epiphany has been that as much as we, we believe that psychological treatments, for example, are very culture context or cultural, uh, you know, culturally uh, bound, uh, in fact, 
these treatments, when paired down to their active ingredients like behavioral activation or problem solving, uh, in fact, work really well across diverse cultural contexts. The key thing, therefore, to take away from this is that these, I believe, are profoundly universal human um, experiences. Uh, and the mechanisms through which these techniques work are also universal and therefore potentially grounded in some fundamental processes. The, the second key point to make is you don't actually therefore offer them in the same way in different places. So whereas in, in say in a highly specialized clinic, I would tell a person that they have a mental illness called depression, which is something that they can easily accept because they're in a clinic that has the word psychiatry or psychology on it. So they already have embraced the idea that they have a mental health problem. Whereas in a, in a village in India, I would say, you know, um, you have a stress-related problem uh, because your husband is drinking heavily and coming home aggressive. That's why you aren't sleeping well and you're constantly thinking about uh, the past and, you know, feeling hopeless. Uh, all we're going to do, therefore, is give you, teach you certain skills to help you recover. So, you know, it's the framing the psychoeducational component that actually can look very different depending on where you are, what setting you are. But the active ingredient of the psychotherapy will, in fact, often be exactly the same. Yeah, that, wow, that's uh, that's very well put. And you know, one of the phrases that you mentioned, just kind of piggybacking on what you said, is that this the idea that psychotropics are. Uh, uh, their acceptability is vanishingly small and a lot of the interventions that that you know we just spoke about have to do with psychotherapy interventions um and i want to hear from your experience what what that's been like formulating these um different interventions what what are some interventions that have been formulated uh, through your work that have like ad created perhaps something novel in the process and how you know we talk a lot about um, kind of sharing with the world our expertise uh, when we're like coming from like high income countries and uh, places like the West sharing with with other countries what are some things that could be brought back uh, that we can learn from here and apply here so I would say my most important contribution in the area of active ingredients uh, for the treatment of a mental health problem are in the field of depression and 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 the work that I've done uh, has led to the shortest uh, 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 psychotherapy for depression, which has remission and recovery rates that are similar to almost anything in the literature um, mm. described from anywhere in the world. It's a six session treatment. It's mm. built around uh, essentially only one active ingredient, which is behavioral activation, which is very mm. well known to any CBT yeah. practitioner, except mm. it's very rarely given in six sessions and only in BA form. Yeah. Now, the important thing to say about this is this is actually a contribution that is building on a lot of other parallel science that has happened around the same time. For mm -hmm. example, a very recent uh, um, network meta-analysis looking at the active ingredients of psychological treatments for depression found that BA was the single most, uh, uh, it, it, was, it was the active ingredient that had the largest effect on mm -hmm. outcome more than any other. Uh, and so in parallel, you know, we, we, we found exactly the same thing. That is, we don't need a hundred other pieces, uh, and which, of course, add to enormous complexity to the intervention. Mm. 
You know, imagine learning a single technique. Imagine what that means, of course, to the provider so that they can actually, you know, deliver that technique in a way that is consistent and good quality when you only and have one our, technique. And just for our audience, uh, can you just briefly tell us about behavioral activation, just what it what it means? Oh, in of our course, context? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So behavioral activation is one of the suite of techniques that is used in cognitive behavior therapy. And mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a very simple way, it is exactly this. It is really, uh, it's be- built on the premise that when one is under severe stress, um, one tends to withdraw from that stressful situation. This Mm -hmm. is of course, from an evolutionary perspective can be very protective. Um, But when it becomes maladaptive, that is to say you withdraw from the world around you instead of engaging with important activities that you need to do, things that might actually help you solve the stressful problem or things that might give you some pleasure and distract you and help you move on. Um, Instead, you go into a vicious cycle of withdrawal, uh, feeling miserable, hopeless, helpless, and getting trapped as it were Mm. in what ultimately emerges uh, as a depressive syndrome. So what behavioral activation is is really around is to is 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 to is to explain to you this 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 model this uh, this mm-hmm. mechanistic model of how depression mm-hmm. occurs and mm-hmm. is sustained, and then to work with the patient to mm-hmm. develop a, um, a a plan to reactivate as it were, uh, and that involves identifying and engaging in small bits with pleasurable purposeful, meaningful activities that are identified by the patient, um, Mm -hmm. conducting those or carrying those out, reporting back how you feel, much like any other uh, technique in CBT. It's it's essentially learning a technique or learning a skill, practicing Mm it, mastering it, and so that you're then also prepared in the longer term to use it whenever you again experience stress. Of course, as you know, uh, maybe your listeners are not aware of this, you know, that in fact, the long-term outcomes when you compare, uh, you know, psychological treatments with antidepressants are actually much better for psychological treatments mm-hmm. in large part mm-hmm. because you don't need those treatments uh, uh, beyond the dose to keep you well for, uh, for, 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 for extended periods of time. Absolutely. Whereas with antidepressants, of course, you know, um, you, 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 you tend to relapse if you don't take the treatment uh, for at least nine to 12 months. So, you know, it, it, you know, essentially what the great thing of here is, Monty, is that we have a choice. Patients have a choice. We're fortunate that um, we have, in the case of depression, two reasonably effective treatments. They're not, you know, they don't cure everyone, but they work really well for those for whom they do work. And I think the idea really here is for, for, for us to make sure that we give patients a choice. The other, uh, you asked me about the, uh, the other important innovation in, that, in this PA treatment was of course, the treatment is designed to be delivered by non-specialist providers, which mm-hmm. has been at the heart of global health innovations that uh, you know, specialists must perform to the top of their game. You know, if you think of what it takes to create a psychologist or a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. it is like, think about five to 10, 10 years approximately of higher education after, you know, this is your MD and then your psych residency and then, you know, getting to a stage where you can be independent. What is the point of using someone's skills that are so sophisticated to treat something that could be managed just as well by a frontline worker? Surely the way to deal, uh, you know, surely the way to sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, protect people's skills and expertise is to make sure that they are working with the sort of clinical problems that are aligned, that are matched to their expertise. And so what this model of care that I champion really speaks for is a plural team-based model um, in which the first responder 
for most people with mental health problems, and certainly for those with mild to moderate mental health problems, is a frontline worker who can deliver a brief, evidence-informed psychosocial intervention. Uh, I will say in the same breath that that worker mm -hmm. must always be part of a collaborative care model so that mm -hmm. those individual patients who need more specialized care, who develop you know, red flags, uh, you know, symptoms that indicate that they may need to be, um, uh, as it were, uh, upgraded uh, uh, the system. Uh, so therefore, these frontline workers must work within that collaborative care model. And patients can move both up into more specialized care, but also the other way around. Uh, that once acute needs or more complex needs are addressed, the frontline worker becomes an ally of the behavioral health team, the mental health team, to ensure good long-term outcomes by supporting patients with the recovery process in the community. Yeah, that, that completely makes sense. This this aspect of you know, performing to the top of one's like level or licensure, and and I think that those sound like a lot of conversations that I'm hearing in the United States too regarding perhaps like uh, what we call the mid level practitioners, like physicians mm -hmm. assistants, nursing or nurse practitioners here in the United States. I I'm I'm curious as well, like uh, in this discussion of of improving like mental health in low resource regions if you have some experience as well or that you could share with trying to address disparities is in a place like the united states that's more high income but you still see these quite massive disparities between like different ethnic or racial groups yes you see well exactly you know and and, and in fact um you know jonathan when sometimes people come to me and say i want to i want to get involved with global mental health uh, you know um which country in africa asia or latin america should i go to and i uh, my, my response usually is you don't need to go that far to find disparities um and you really hit the nail on the head you know the disparities in the us are even more difficult to to accept because the us is the most well-resourced country in the world when it comes to mental health resources. Probably true for really all health resources, but certainly for mental health. I mean, the city of New York has more mental health uh, uh, professionals than the whole of Africa. And so, you know, it gives you a sense, you know, of how well-resourced uh, we are in this country, how privileged we are in this country. Uh, and so clearly it, it, it begs the question, why having enjoyed so much of, of, of mental health resources and spending so much money on mental health care, uh, are there more people with serious mental illness in America's prisons than in any kind of care setting? Uh, and, and I think these are, these are fundamental questions about the structure of how we deliver mental health care. They also speak to the psychiatric profession and the fact that a very significant proportion of psychiatrists, in fact, uh, will not, for example, accept Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, they will only, won't even accept insurance um, in, in some cases. Uh, you know, many psychiatrists will only work for privileged groups in the population. And I think this is, of course, part of the problem is that the medical profession in the U.S. is fragmented. Uh, a significant chunk of it doesn't see itself as part of a national mission. Uh, which is okay, you know, I mean, I, I guess this is to each his own, really. But our assumption that simply having this large number of psychiatrists and psychologists should fix the problem is therefore flawed, because we haven't taken into account that a significant proportion of that group has no interest uh, at all in, in, in issues like equity disparities uh, and addressing unmet needs for care. So I think we have to refashion our, our thinking about uh, mental health care by taking into account that only a certain fraction, we don't know how big a fraction, but my guess is it's probably less than half uh, of all the specialized mental health professionals in this country want to be part of a more global mental health oriented uh, delivery model. 
And we have to pump resources that come from agencies like SAMHSA to build the foundation of mental health care so that we can begin to, the foundation refers to, of course, what I talked about earlier, the community-based providers, uh, so that uh, these individuals working in partnership or collaboration with, uh, with mental health specialists uh, who, who share the same ideals, the same values, uh, will in fact contribute towards addressing these huge gaps. I'm 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 curious to hear your 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 opinion on this, you know, because there's a lot of reservation around. Um, I know that I've heard this voice by multiple people around me and even attendings about APPs and their abilities to kind of uh, take on the similar position as psychiatrists in this juxtaposition where, hey, there's there's a lot of room and there's a lot of underserved areas, but at the same time, the fear of the field becoming kind of um, uh, diluted, if I was to use that word, uh, by by just decentralizing and delegating a lot of the things that we spend many years training, um, that they end up being done by community healthcare workers or by APPs. Just cu- curious to hear your opinion on that. Well, I think the question isn't about the community health workers doing the work of psychiatrists at all. Mm-hmm. It's about mm-hmm. doing the work that no psychiatrist ever countenance doing. Uh, let's begin mm-hmm. with that. How many psychiatrists mm-hmm. do you know would do home visits? How many psychiatrists yeah. do you know who would engage with family members over a space of an hour and talk about how they can support somebody with schizophrenia in the recovery process? How many psychiatrists do you know who will work at a, at, at a per hourly rate that a community health worker earns? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, let's be perfectly honest. We're not yeah. talking about uh, someone replacing a psychiatrist. We're really talking about uh, a, a cadre of workers delivering interventions and working at, uh, um, uh, at a cost that no psychiatrist in this country or anywhere in the world would countenance doing. Um, and, you know, it, 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 the honest truth is that this only adds value to what we do as psychiatrists, because mm-hmm. we ultimately want our patients to recover. What community health workers are doing is providing the missing component of the care package that we mm-hmm. as psychiatrists are neither interested in delivering, nor are mm-hmm. we reimbursed to deliver. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, that's, these are two quite closely connected to each other. We're not interested because we don't get reimbursed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so, um, you know, I'm very blunt about this. It's mm-hmm. a little bit like, for example, a surgeon saying, you know, why do we really need post-op care? You know, um, you know, we don't really need it. You know, I mean, you know, we've done the surgery. Uh, yeah. and, you know, you never hear a surgeon say that. And in many yeah. ways, I, I kind of think that what we're really talking about is a pre and post-op care that is equivalent to psychiatric practice, which mm. is never done by a psychiatrist. Yeah, absolutely. And I do like the idea of, of, you know, this rise of task sharing was a phrase that I've seen a lot. Um, between and this multi multidisciplinary approach to taking um, psych- psychiatric care, so I absolutely see that benefit to that. Um, I'm I'm always I'm always curious to also learn about how other people think about this when it comes to uh, having specialized in this practice. For instance, the example of depression, of, of forming this treatment that seems to be very well delivered by community healthcare workers and is essentially not necessarily going to need a psychiatrist at that point. Um, and can be really quite beneficial and impactful, um, but can be in, in countries like the U.S. can serve as, as a counter model. And just to, to add to that is a question of uh, healthcare and mental health care parity. It's like when it comes to reimbursement. Um, I've seen that you were involved with the drafting for mental health, um, the first mental health law, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for India. Um, 
how do you go about creating parity um, in in countries or in developed countries or low 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 resource countries? Because it seems to be a big issue in both. So just to just to correct you a little bit there, I was involved with the the drafting of India's first national mental health policy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the Mental Health Care Act that you're also referring to. Uh, has been a landmark legislation in India. It's mm-hmm. very much like the Parity Act in the US, which essentially mm-hmm. enshrines parity for people with mental and physical mm-hmm. health problems um, on all aspects of healthcare insurance and you know co- insurance coverage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think these are very important legislative instruments because what they do is they remove, at least on the uh, from on, on, on a legal foundation, any distinctions that people would make between mental and physical health care. Um, they also entitle, therefore, people with mental health problems to employ the law to demand an entitlement. Uh, certainly, the Indian Mental Health Care Act includes uh, a legal uh, uh, mandates uh, on entitlement for care that needs to be provided by the public system, by the state. Either the state can purchase the care or it can directly provide it. One way or the other, the state is held responsible. And I do know many families that have invoked this new act. It's quite recent, it's only a few years old, um, and taken the local healthcare system to court, for example, because uh, you know a, a family member wasn't able to access care for a particular mental health problem. So these are very powerful legislative tools. That being said, it hasn't necessarily corrected all of America's healthcare problems, you know, the parity law. It's it certainly helped, but it hasn't, you know, I mean, we all know what, what the scale of the crisis here is. Mondi, let me, let me, let me just, just clarify the scale of the crisis. It isn't just the numbers of Americans who are uh, with serious mental illness language in prison. You have no idea how many of uh, people who've been shot by the police uh, in the last 10 years actually were people with mental illness. This is a lot more than just being in prison. It's also about your life being snuffed out. Um, there is also the rather, you know, uh, rather sort of sobering observation by Tom Insel, who was the director of NIMH for nearly 15 mm-hmm. years, who said, you know, $20 billion of spending, and uh, mostly in biology. And during that same period, the burden of mental illness in America has only risen. Suicide mm-hmm. mortality has risen. Substance mm-hmm. use mortality has risen. You know, imagine any other field of medicine. Let's take oncology or cardiovascular disease as two examples, you know, both chronic conditions. Um, you know, seriously, you look at the impacts that their investments in science have had in the last 20 years, and their trajectories look a lot different to ours. How many cancers have moved from being untreatable to becoming, you know, completely treatable? Uh, mm-hmm. Look at the drop in cardiovascular and stroke mortality in the last decade. I'm not suggesting that all of that is due to medicines. A lot of that is prevention, uh, very effective prevention, for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm. the reduction in smoking. But whatever the reason is, you know, people in other fields of medicine can show charts showing, you know, nice declines and say, we've invested all this work in science. We've invested all this uh, stuff in, in, our, in our service provision. And look at the impacts we have, whether the you can attribute the, the outcome to any specific intervention is questionable, but there's certainly an improvement. Um, you can't, you can't, there's no improvement in the mental health field. So, you mm-hmm. know, there's nothing to attribute it to, uh, anything to. Mm. A lot of time we talk about prevention uh, in mental health. And at least for me, going through medical school, thinking about prevention, it seemed very straightforward, as you mentioned, with these cardiovascular diseases. Oh, stop smoking, start exercising, eat a healthy diet. <laughs> mm-hmm. And voila, you have prevention of uh, non-communicable diseases. What does that look like in, in psychiatry and what does that look like in global mental health? 
So, you know, I see prevention as having um, really three different components to it. Um, the first thing I want to say is that we in psychiatry have been unnecessarily pessimistic about the prospects of prevention. Um, if you had to look at um, prevention through the prism of risk factors for mental illness, uh, we have very, very robust evidence on certain risk factors that are tractable. By this, I don't mean, you know, intractable risk factors like extreme poverty, although I believe those are also tractable um, uh, in, in ways that I'll explain in a moment. But I'm talking about the biggest risk of all for poor mental health in adult life is adversities in childhood. And, you know, by this, I'm talking about a wide range of adverse childhood experiences that go beyond our, our usual emphasis on traumatic experience like child abuse, but actually are really to do with childhood neglect that often occurs in a wide variety of different situations and circumstances that families find themselves in. Uh, we know that actually these are, uh, these are not only profound, um, the important risk factors in every culture, in every context, these are universal, and they also seem to be independent of any particular specificity uh, with regards to a particular mental illness outcome. You'll find adverse childhood experiences seem to be almost pan disorder. Um, so uh, the question, and we also have a good mechanism now, uh, you know, a very, very clear mechanism to do with how adverse childhood experiences affect the plastic developing brain in the first decade of life. And we also have interventions to do with parenting interventions, um, you know, to support uh, uh, families that are high risk. I would say this should be universal interventions. So I think we're unnecessarily pessimistic. And I strongly believe that if programs that were focusing on parenting interventions in the first two years of life in particular, but actually I would say extending through uh, early to middle childhood uh, were implemented with it through it with an equity focus so that you know there is more effort being placed to those uh, families that are more vulnerable um, i have no doubt that we will see a reduction in the burden of mental health problems uh, for that generation the results like smoking do not happen in a year they don't happen in even two years they happen 10 15 years later and you need therefore that kind of horizon uh, you could need to be prepared for that kind of horizon to begin to see uh, uh, effects this, so these are universal interventions targeting, you know, risk factors that many, many kids will experience. Then you have sort of other universal interventions to me, you know, the most, the best example is cash transfers for people who are acutely impoverished. I can see that with COVID-19. Honestly, I think the US government stimulus bill, perhaps one of the most important thing is done is to stave off what could have been a really enormous tidal wave of acute mental health problems. Um, uh, you know, it, we now have very good evidence that cash transfers that essentially are just cash given by the government uh, to, to, to families and individuals who are very impoverished have very powerful benefits to people's mental health. So that's another example of a preventative intervention at a structural or social level. But then there is also selective interventions, and those are for people who belong to groups that are more vulnerable because they face a higher prevalence of, uh, of, of risk factors. A very good example of that would be Indigenous Americans, uh, Native Americans, actually, I prefer to use that word, um, who have, through historical trauma, uh, bear a, a range of different risk factors that are unique only to that particular group. Another, another, another example would be, uh, uh, you know, transgender uh, uh, young people. So, you know, these are groups who by nature of their identity um, are more vulnerable. And for them, the interventions have to again be non-clinical. They have to be around understanding the, the social origins 
of that vulnerability. And typically the interventions tend to be collective interventions, interventions that try and address, for example, uh, in the case of uh, Native Americans, uh, interventions that address uh, reparations, interventions that address uh, you know, land ownership, uh, their, their, their rights to observe their own religious practices, their languages, their customs, and so on and so forth. And then finally, you have indicated prevention, uh, which is, of course, people who don't meet threshold criteria for a diagnosis, but have symptoms. For me, that's almost on the continuum of treatment, actually, because those tend to be individual interventions, uh, and they are, um, they are best provided by frontline workers. I missed one more preventative intervention that I want to say before, I, because I think it has a really good bang for its buck, and that is teaching adolescents. Um, emotional regulation skills. I, I, you know, as we now know that adolescence is a very unique um, developmental life phase because of the dramatic uh, changes that are happening in the brain during that period. Risk-taking is, is, is a characteristic of being an adolescent. And so uh, what we really want to do during this phase of life is to build competencies to manage uh, one's uh, uh, emotions. Uh, and, um, and there's a variety of different ways that that's framed, mindfulness training or life skills training or whatever you call it, but basically it's essentially teaching uh, uh, you know, adolescents emotional regulation skills. My sense is Monty, if you combine all of this, we have a lot more we can do on prevention than we think we do. You know, honestly, in many other branches of medicine, there's actually very little in prevention. There, the, 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 the tobacco, is really a great one because the effects are huge. You know, tobacco alone accounts for so much of human health problems. Um, but it's the one risk factor, you know. Uh, you know, actually in our field, we have many. And it, it always excites me to talk about prevention, even though, let's be honest, most psychiatrists think there's nothing we can do uh, to prevent. It has to be said, most work on prevention happens outside psychiatry. Um, you know, it really happens in other sectors, with one perhaps exception being parenting interventions, which I think for, for child psychiatrists, certainly that would be something that they would see uh, relevant. But here, we're not talking only of children or parents with mental illness, we're talking of children who grow up in families that are you know, experiencing extreme social economic stresses. Yeah, I, I particularly like how you're, you're phrasing, uh, it sounds like this, you're alluding to this inability to separate this uh, kind of a social justice, social equity from mental health and prevention, especially as it is related to key groups that have, or are on the lower end of the disparities in mental health, especially in the United States. And and I feel like it's empowering in a way as well, because to me, it sounds like these are things that we don't necessarily need to leave to the, the experts, the psychiatrists to solve uh, when we talk about you know, social justice. And, and so I'm curious if you have any particular thoughts on maybe somebody who's you know, a high school student or an undergraduate student that has an interest in global mental health and, and things that they could do in order to... Like, to start working on this right now, if as a cause, right, right at home. So, um, I mean, I, I think, you know, Jonathan, the first thing to do would be to just read um, some foundational material that would give uh, uh, people who are interested in the field an understanding of what the field is about, the science that lies at the heart of the field the science that the field has actually contributed to and how that has been implemented in different parts of the world, including here in the US. Um, I think that would be the way to place to start. I would direct um, uh, you know, anyone who's interested to the Mental Health for All lab, which I lead at, the, at Harvard Medical School. Uh, you will get a sense of the kind of work that we're currently doing and we would welcome 
Uh, I personally would welcome, uh, you know, residents, psychiatrists, psychologists, any clinical mental health professional who's interested to learn more or to be involved in any of our work or to get advice to just reach out to me. Uh, you know, I consider that one of my uh, one of my missions is to, is to engage psychiatrists and psychologists uh, and other allied mental health professionals in this field. Uh, just to, just so you know, I work a lot with mental health professionals. They may look like I only work with community health workers. Actually, I I work very closely with the World Psychiatric Association, for example. In mm. fact, I'm co-leading uh, a forthcoming Lancet Commission uh, on depression, which will be published perhaps in the fall or in the winter uh, this year. It's a major new. Uh, it's a major report in the Lancet. Um, uh, synthesizing everything we know about depression and many of the uh, uh, many of the findings and the recommendations are exactly aligned with what I've been discussing with you today. But the point I'm making here is that almost everyone on the commission are instantly recognized names in psychiatry. So it's important not to see global mental health as being in competition with psychiatry. In fact, it's been led by, it's been nourished by, and it's being um, it's embraced by. Uh, psychiatrists from all around the world, um, mm -hmm. and also by, by psychologists. I mean, you know, mental health professionals more generally. It's it's incorrect, I think, fundamentally incorrect to see global mental health as a discipline in competition with with the mental health professionals. It's more accurate to portray it as a, a discipline that is extending the impact of prevention and care for mental health problems to the entire population. And at the level of the individual patient, which is, of course, the primary concern of any clinician, it is improving and enhancing the chances of long term sustained recovery. Yeah, well, that that is certainly a powerful statement. Do do please, guys, check out um, the Mental Health for All, if I'm not mistaken, was was the organization. It's not um, an organization, uh, 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 Monty. It's my lab in Harvard Medical School. Yeah, and so it's a, it's a group in, that I have assembled. And of course, Global Mental at Harvard is a cross-university initiative, which also has a bunch of things. You can find access to, to that particular initiative through the lab website. Um, just type in Mental Health for All, uh, lab, Harvard Medical School, uh, you know, it's some combination of that, and you will, you will, find, you will find our lab uh, homepage. And we'll make sure to put in the link in the description for the podcast as well so that you guys can check it out directly through that link. Um, as well. Um, we, we're, we're so honored to have you on. It's been very educational for us. Any last remark as we kind of come to the conclusion part of the episode for audience or for us um, to kind of go home with? Sure. Well, Monty, here's, your, here's what I want to say. Um, America's mental health care system is failing. It was failing even before the pandemic. Even before the pandemic, a very significant proportion of need was not being met. The pandemic has fueled that need enormously and business as usual will simply not work. This is the time, I think it's a historic opportunity. You know, the honest truth is I've never seen so much political will and new money that is being pumped by, the, uh, by Congress into mental health care. Governors around the US are pumping money from their own state budgets like in California around mental health. This is a unique historic moment for our field. It is the moment for psychiatrists, psychologists to actually embrace a population perspective. They must embrace a perspective to do with disparities, both historic and contemporary, because this is where we can really transform America's mental health landscape. And I believe that those of us who are mental health professionals are privileged 
And because we, we, we have most amazing knowledge and experience and expertise, we need to step off this concern that we're diluting a profession or that, you know, there is, that we have some territory we're trying to protect. This is not at all the case. Mm-hmm. Instead, we need to see this as a unique opportunity for ourselves to make ourselves meaningful and worthwhile to the whole country. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Vikram Patel. It's been a pleasure having you on. This is another episode of Psych Debates. Check you guys out next time.